Woo-hoo. Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I'm feeling refreshed on this Tuesday. You look refreshed. I, it's nice, actually. I haven't had this feeling in a while. You don't quite smell refreshed, though. You smell a little bit uh, stank right now. It's because I'm so excited to be refreshed. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, it's an interesting <laughs> concept. Yeah, I do. The more excitement and energy and stoke I have, the worse I smell. And so <laughs> I actually, like, it's an interesting concept because I just start to associate it with good things. Yeah, you're your stank is a, a purely positive experience. Actually, I'm pretty sure that I have a major attraction to your stank. Like that might have been Okay, what that's I, weird. Well, no, but like pheromones and stuff, they say that really matters for mating. There's a thing of pheromones and then there's a thing of this smells real bad. And <laughs> I feel like they probably aren't supposed to cross. But actually, I we came into this podcast and I was like, David, I smell bad. Yeah. And you're like, it's going to be a good podcast. It's going to be such a good podcast. Well, I get erections when I walk past dumpsters now. So, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay. That's gross comment of the day, and we are almost less than a minute into the podcast. That's how you know it's going to be a good it's, podcast. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> Speaking of gross, yesterday I'm out running, and it's okay if I say the text oh, that I got? Oh, God, I don't even know. Oh, yeah, sure, go okay, ahead. Yeah, so I'm out running. I'm like a mile in, and this is the text that Megan thought was necessary to send me in my run. It just said, biggest poop ever. Actually, it said biggest poopy ever. <laughs> yeah, it Actually, it might have been said, I think it said big poopy energy yeah, yeah. Is, is the better way to phrase that in all caps. And I had a little conundrum when I texted you because yeah. I was like, is poopy, is that spelled with a Y or an IE? But so, actually, that's a good point. I'm not exactly sure. I was like, is there a correct way to spell this? Surely a five-year-old should know. <laughs> I like it when you call me big poopy. Um, no, so the the relevance here was that just a few minutes before, she had also gone to the bathroom and had also like messed up our toilet, which points out something about pregnancy you don't hear very often. This is us trying to be fully, uh, you know, transparent on the podcast. Pregnancy messes with the GI system a lot. It messes with a lot of your organs. Things just yeah. tend to get stuck in there. And then you know what? They come out at really inconvenient times. <laughs> it's like, it is, I'm usually like very poop positive. Yeah. I, you know, I have an easy time pooping in the woods, very, you know, respecting nature, all of that stuff. Yeah. And pregnancy has been a whole different boat. It is gross. It is weird. I, it's just, it's not fun. You usually respect nature, but you're currently disrespecting our toilet. And that our is plumbing, true. Yes. <laughs> our sewer. Which I'm fine with. I don't mind with disrespect to the toilet disrespecting the trees yeah. the people's experience of natures i have problems with. but yeah obviously this is gross but the reason we're bringing it up is like i think often people don't talk about the random shit that goes on in life like whether it's with pregnancy or other things and i mean i've seen that in athletes like what i'll often say to athletes in their log is like i don't consider this like fully like we're all in on the pregnancy experience until you've shat yourself i i totally agree actually so as a med student i was a little bit hard i you know you see you, you help deliver babies as a yeah. med student it's actually it was one of my favorite parts of being a med student because it was like there is life coming into the world and i am the smallest part of it and i didn't drop this baby <laughs> i like i was actually very nervous to what is it like i mean that would be so i mean someone is like right there no, if just... i if i ever so slightly like fumbled this baby someone <laughs> would pick it up they would be they would go full tom brady on this whole situation Oh, the tuck rule? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so, I mean, I'm not worried about you dropping the baby. I need more w- being in the room and watching it. Like... Oh, this is where this comes in, though. Okay. It's because I, as a med student, I was, like, horrified. People often, they don't talk about this. Yeah. And this is my first experience to actually fully realize this as a med student, was that when you give birth to a baby, you also tend to give birth to, like, a five-pound poop at the <laughs> same time, side by side, simultaneously. And I don't feel like they prepare women for this adequately yeah. because women are like, this is embarrassing, this is awful, this is horrible. And it's like, yeah the 20 other women that I saw give birth just did the same thing. Yeah. Well, based on the pheromones, maybe I'll get an erection right there. 
Uh. Actually, I might, I'm, you know, I'm being induced. Yeah. So I might, I've already thought about having my mom potentially as backup in case you pass out. In case I pass out. Yeah. I'm almost positive I will. Like I've passed out when you've gotten PT. I know. So. I am aware of that. And I remember being in PT and, you know, we were married at the time and I was like, a baby's not going to be good for no. this environment. <laughs> yeah. Everything about that situation just seems like tough. Life is such a miracle, but I do not understand the geometry. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know if that SAT question, I would, I would say none of the above. E. Well, I feel like it just prepares you for parenting. You, yeah. give, you give birth to an eight pound baby and a five pound poop. And that probably describes like the rest of the life trajectory from there. <laughs> and then you feel quite refreshed. Exactly. Um, so we have such a fun podcast today. We're going to have uh, tons of topics on both science and shoes and also this big business topic that's going to be really fun. So please stick around and listen to that. Uh, but first, You've been, in addition to uh, wrecking our sewer, you've been taking some time to slow down a little bit. It's been enjoyable. So yeah. this weekend, I took a slow stroll with Addie. I, you know, now I'm like kind of back in training mode. Training has a strong ish because it's like <laughs> I'm a pregnant woman and training is all over the map as yeah. it typically is. But it's funny, like I actually miss the slow stroll adventures I did when I was dealing with my heart. And so I was like, you know, it's time to bring those back just because they're purely fun. But they also leave you feeling really refreshed yeah. for Podcast Tuesday. And I think it's just a great lesson for athletics in general. It's like if athletics feels like a drag in any way, even physically, if like you're just not recovering, just slow down the easy days a ton. Like it to, and to the point that you're almost hiking. I mean, you know, you can run some sometimes, but like, I love that about you. You just are out there straight strolling. I was getting selfies. Uh, you were apparently talking to all of our friends out on the trails. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. It's fun. Actually, I do have some moments though out there where I'm like, I wonder if there's hiking segments out here. <laughs> and so I'll be like strolling and then I'll just like randomly send really fast, like a, a yeah. fast hike on, for six minutes and be like, maybe there was a segment there. And so there is, it's kind of a mix of both, but I, I've come to love it. And yeah. I, I feel like if if you are feeling like overwhelmed, just embrace a slow stroll here. Yeah. And you know, it's not just in pregnancy, the physiology of really slowing down is so strong. It, Alan Cousins, a physiologist and coach who we love and talk about all the time here, please follow him on Twitter. He is great. Um, talks a lot about zone zero, zone zero work. Um, so it being one of the most important parts of athletic development, what he means, there's things like yoga, strolls, hikes, um, but also zone one work, very low level. That's like really good for um, your cardiovascular system. Um, that really adds into performance over time, but it's so hard for us to have discipline to do. So I've been focusing on that a lot, really bringing in the shuffle and I'm feeling like younger and faster than ever, um, slowing down my easy a little bit. And I think hiking a lot with you, getting more of that zone zero work has helped me a lot. And I have a 40 pound weight vest coming. So I'm going to be wearing a weight vest while hiking with you. It's going to be epic. I got really excited about that because I'm wearing a weight vest and we're about to be equal. It's <laughs> going to be great. Yeah. Yours has a little bit lower center of gravity. Yeah, than that's, mine. Tr that's true. Yours is like more around your like your chest area. And mine's... sometimes you drop off 13 pounds of it in the toilet. <laughs> just random weight. Um, but so while we're out there in Boulder, we get to see so many people. And what I've realized is, so there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast clearly because we get a lot of woohoos out there. It's fantastic. It's I mean, We met so many podcast listeners on Sunday. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. So we love you all. Thank you for saying that. Um, but I've realized that there's a difference between being a listener and being a true believer for whatever cult we have here going. And that is the presence of a nose strip. So whenever I see someone that says woohoo and is wearing one of these tan breathe right nose strips, I'm like, okay, you're in, you're all in, uh, because I am such a big nose strip fan. And the reason this is relevant is not just those people on the trail, but I was sent by a podcast listener, a video of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, saying that she swears by nose strips, breathe right nose strips, as her uh, secret to brain energy, to thinking. 
And she didn't even reference that she was wearing them at night. She yeah. was like, this is what I used to think. Yeah. And it opened my mind. I was like, you know, the next time I sit down to write a manuscript, that no strip is going on. Yes. And it's going to cultivate these words that just come out of nowhere. It's going to be great. Yeah. We're going to um, redistribute wealth through our noses. It starts there. It starts in the olfactory system. Um, but to be serious, like try this if you haven't. I mean, um, so AOC does it in the um, Giro d'Italia, which we're watching. So the big bike race, you'll see that like a substantial amount of the Peloton wears them. In particular, the team Ineos, um, which is known as the big science-driven team. And so the studies, unfortunately, aren't like the strongest in the world. Definitely not the strongest. But we were having a conversation about this the other night. And I think actually no strips are a great example where I think there's a point in a time for like highly data-driven lives. And we're very, very data-driven yeah. in how we coach and how we do this podcast and how we do a lot of things in life. But I think there's also just times where it's you take the data-driven approach and you throw in some anecdotal evidence yeah. and you just try some new things and you see what happens and you have that like open mindset and that flexibility. And I think no strips are one of those great examples. I agree. Plus, I feel like people who embrace that mindset are probably more willing to wear no strips. Yeah. So the for the type of no strip you want is the tan no strip, the large tan no strip from Breathe Right. Those are the only ones that stick and they stick no matter, I've never had it fall off. Why is it tan? Why is it specific? Uh, because the, the clear ones just fall off. I think it's a, ah. the adhesive that they use for it. Um, but it's the one that across the board, I've never had an issue with, never had an athlete have an, is athlete have an issue with. And I think a lot of people stop wearing nose strips because if it falls off, it feels like you're suffocating all of a sudden, which to me is also a sign of its efficacy that when it falls off, you're like, oh no, what happened? Much like, you know, if you're wearing a super shoe and then go back to normal shoes, you're like, oh, I'm impotent all of a sudden. That's how I feel with nose strips. Probably like going from like condom to no condom and back. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm, is that okay to say? I think it's definitely okay. I mean, we're clearly, you know, not experts in the condom arts. <laughs> based on... We have proven that. Yeah. Actually, that was, it was very planned. Yeah, it was planned. We'd stopped with condoms long ago. The fact that we didn't get pregnant sooner is a miracle, honestly. Like, I, I got to give us props in some way because I always assumed that we didn't get pregnant because one of us must have had an issue. Like I assumed I was infertile or something. Um, and but, then we got pregnant so fast and we were like, oh my gosh, we could have messed up for all the years yeah. I was not on birth control. This was like Russian roulette every single month for quite a while. Um, so high five. That's I know. really good. Go team. Yeah. We didn't have a baby too soon. Um, okay. So uh, other, other fun things we're going to do. We're going to do like a rapid fire of like six different fun topics here before we get into the big business topic. Um, You've been having some big, some big energy here. Um, in particular, some beep, beep energy. Yeah. So I've been feeling the song Big Energy by Lotto. And yeah. it is a great song. And I co-opt songs for myself. Like, I'm horrible at hearing lyrics and actually perceiving the accurate words. And, you know, I've had, we've talked somewhere, I, was, I think like around episode 60, about big dump truck energy. Yeah. When, and this happens to anyone, no matter body size, sometimes you just feel big in your body. Yeah. And for me, often that used to like, correspond with days when I was actually having really strong power. Like yeah. I was running really well on the big dump truck energy days. And so I was out there on the trails saying beep, beep. And now I'm having big dump truck energy days, not exactly feeling fast, yeah. but there's, I'm growing life and I'm working hard for that. So I'll take it. So but you feel like a little bit of a dump truck right now? I feel, I feel I have big dump truck energy going, but I'm proud of it. In this song, it's the, the lyrics are actually, well, I didn't know it, yeah. but the lyrics actually involve big dick energy and yeah. I was hearing other things. So Megan was saying beep, beep energy over and over. And I was like, 
that can't be the lyrics. And I think, how are you mishearing the lyric that corresponds with the thing we talk about on the podcast so All often? All the time. Everything is big blank energy. But we actually, I was like, oh my gosh, I must be so stupid. Like, yeah. how am I not even hearing this right? And we actually meet in the middle. Because I looked up the, the exact lyric, and the lyric is, got that big, big energy. Big, big energy. And when she says big, big, it sounds like beep, beep. So I'm out there on the trails like, beep, beep energy, yo. <laughs> I like that. So big, big energy. I think that gets back to the the big dump truck energy. I've been feeling that too. Like, I think that some of my best days always correspond with the, like the days. Sometimes I wake up and I'm just like, I feel big and strong. And that's the uh, mindset we always want to encourage. So that's the the next big topic. It's like this big dump truck energy that I think some people like instinctively try to resist is actually something to embrace and is can be so damn powerful sometimes. And we've been embracing that. So this weekend, we haven't had burgers in a long time. Yeah, why is that? I don't know. I, we just, we've been going through, we go through different stages on like DoorDash or what we cook or whatever. And yeah. for some reason, we just like haven't had burgers in a bit. And so we finally found this new place in Boulder called the Wild Pastures Burger Company. It, it is, is life-changing. It is so good. And I was like, this must, it's so good that this has to be a chain everywhere. And it's only in Boulder. So <laughs> if you're looking for a franchise, it seems like it's a potential opportunity. Yeah. And it, while I was eating that, it was really um, bringing home. One, it was a, quite a food gasm. It was a double cheeseburger. Yeah. And it was a food gasm experience. And you put everything, you ordered it for us. There was like every single condiment and topping on there possible. Yes. There was lots of um, mayo. Though one thing that's interesting, this is an aside, but mayo has really gone through a rebranding that all of a sudden they call it aioli and everyone loves it. It's actually true. This was this was straight mayo. This had no aioli in but it. But it said aioli. It always says aioli rather than mayo now. I know. And it's funny because I, I am subject to that. Like my thoughts on, on aioli, I would give aioli five stars. I would give mayo one star. Yeah. Which is really, I mean, and I am very like... I like all the foods. I'm very food positive, but I saw, I actually did see the mayo on the burger and I was like, fuck. And it was delicious though. It was delicious. It was great. And mayo's I the best. Pretended I, it was alien. There's some hate for mayo that all they needed all this time was rebranding. I think because when we're young, maybe we get caught up in like something gross that we had as a little kid at some point, but mayo is perhaps the greatest. I'm just going to sound like a Minnesotan here. Just saying I am a ride or die with mayo. I see I'm a only girl. I just need <laughs> it just needed a touch of orange. I just I just needed it to like be a little just to believe it's different than mayo, than mayo when it's actually not. It just needed to sound Italian. Um but what it reminded me of is that, you know, when we had met, I hadn't had a burger since I was 11 years old. And we met when I was 22. Um and that's kind of weird. And I think it's pointing out a little bit of a, of a more serious topic that we're going to talk about here. Um, so, you know, flash forward, I, you know, we, I've talked before about being the really big kid. I did some unhealthy things to take control of my body at that point, got to a slightly more healthy place. Um, but still, like the way I needed to manipulate my body for football um, was perhaps done in a somewhat unhealthy way. And when I met you and feel free, you can, we haven't like reviewed this together. So yeah. feel free to stop me and be like, Megan, you've gone too far. Oh, we'll, no, we'll pause this and record it. But I felt like when I met you, you still held some of those. It was very like controlled methods of eating. Like you ate the same thing every day, which I appreciate about you in some ways. Like <laughs> you just like the same food all the time and that's great. But I felt like it was a way to control things and not necessarily to restrict, but just to feel like you understood what you were eating and this was like what your body was getting. Yeah. I mean, I'm not exactly sure. And we only decided to talk about this like right before the podcast. Um, so I haven't, I haven't delved deep into my, the, the crannies of my soul, but, um, in college after I had quit football and I wanted to get into endurance sports, my body was going to go through a change, like just naturally. And I hadn't thought through all these topics like we have, where it's like, find you're strong and your body, if you're active and you eat enough, like your body will find the right place. 
um, I thought I needed to manipulate this. And in the process of that, in addition to restricting, I also became a vegetarian. And that was just, I mean, I was environmental um, major, like, I, you know, that was the field I was going into. So I justified it to myself for ethical reasons. But in retrospect, I'm not sure if it was all that. I think it was probably tied up in a much more complicated narrative around food and bodies. And that's kind of the, the point we wanted to bring up today is that sometimes we see in coaching, and I think in the studies too that Megan's about to get into, that dietary restrictions can have an origin point when a person might be demonstrating less healthy behavior. But then even when they get healthy later or they evolve into a different place, they're still demonstrating the restrictive patterns that are justified in a different location. And so, you know, thankfully you stepped in and totally changed my approach. Well, we went out to dinner all the time yeah. and you, I was just like, and you wanted to be, I think you actually got excited about this and you kind of <laughs> wanted to show off. Like, I think you were like, I'm going to order the pasta or I'm going to order the, the first night we went to, we got like ribs at this and you well, ate them. And yeah, it, the weird yeah. thing is, I mean, in retrospect, I think I, I mean, not having a burger since I was 11, that's weird. Most likely it, I felt almost controlled and it was a liberation that I didn't even, and I'm, I see a lot of people that go through eating disorders describe this type of thing where it's, it's not a choice, right? It doesn't feel like a choice. It's you're in shackles and someone's telling you to jump. It's like, you can't, even though it seems like it should just be a choice. And, and meeting you was, you know, so liberatory in that regard, but also in every different type of life regard of being like, this is what love is and all these other things. And so along with love um, came carnitas. <laughs> which, <laughs> love and carnitas. Which is an interesting association. And I, you know, but I think that that's relevant and something that's important to point out for everyone listening. It's like to examine things like restrictions, the origin points of them, and not just say, you know, take whatever, you know, justification you have at face value. And I think it's really important. I coach a number of athletes that are vegan, vegetarian, have other dietary restrictions. And some of that may be for like ethical reasons. Some of that may be health, longevity. And we totally validate Inflammation, those. any number of things. And I've seen athletes be totally healthy, amazing, fulfilled. They're eating the the foodgasm equivalent of the wild pasture burgers um, as it's done, vegan, gluten-free, whatever dietary preference or restriction that they have. And it works for them and it's great. But I think there is a smaller subset, and this is what we're going to get into in the scientific literature, of, as you're mentioning, people where it starts at that time of disordered eating and it becomes a way of keeping that control going in a way that might just reinforce those patterns of disordered eating or eating pathology. Yeah. And that can be really challenging. And so the reason we're talking about this is we've seen in coaching where, you know, we notice perhaps that an athlete that has gone through these issues in the past has some sort of restrictive behavior and we're just like, okay, well, this is fine. You know, we, we don't need to say anything. Um, you know, th they're working with experts, but then later there's either there's some issue like a relapse or something and you're like shoot that was probably an opportunity to have a broader discussion and because i was scared of hard conversations like the one we're having right now that are complicated um i didn't have it or yeah you know, that restrictive pattern becomes a way of holding on to control and i think it's really important to dive into like personal situations and to just ask those questions of why and i think this is where working with you know a mental health professional a counselor uh, a registered dietitian like and really diving into those associations because it's probably different for every single person and you know we're talking about it in the framework of your story and what we've seen in coaching but in reality like there's complex ties between all of these associations that are different for every person. Yeah. And it's probably like, we probably can't know, like it wasn't until we started talking about this topic right before the podcast that I was like, oh shit, am I just like sublimating my own 
uh, like background associations into this conversation. And I'm like, shit, that's really interesting. It's really, and I probably shouldn't go. Like I've I've always talked about later in my life, I'm going to be a vegetarian. And it's like, I need to be careful if I'm going to do that because it's probably that urge is not just environmental ethics, which is an incredibly valid reason. And I totally, totally justify that as is health for some people. Um, but I need to be careful because of my own unique, specific personal background. And I think that's just where diving into the justifications becomes helpful. But let's get into the science of this because I think this is actually where it, our points become highlighted. And I think this is where just working with that care team becomes really important. So um, in the Eating Behaviors Journal, there was a study published. It was called Increased Prevalence of Vegetarianism Among Women with Eating Pathology. And these numbers are staggering. So the prevalence of lifetime vegetarianism was lowest in the group that did not have eating um, eating pathology. And and that was at 6.8% and highest in the, the clinical group with eating pathology at 34.8%. Wow. So compare that 34.8% to the 6.8%. And I think what you untangle in these studies is that it's really hard. So in epidemiology, we talk about causality all yeah. the time. And I think it's really hard to know whether vegetarianism is causal for playing a role in eating disorders and developing eating disorders. And I think we can't say that with any definitive answer, but I think it does play a role in maintaining an eating disorder or maintaining that level of control for some. Or maybe, maybe not even directly, but the smallest little tendril is connected to that past. Right. Mm -hmm, And so even if you're healthy or you're totally past that in the, the um, role of it has changed in your life, that tendril being connected is something to be aware of because you can maintain that you can maintain whether it's vegetarianism or gluten-free or anything else that's not like health driven you can maintain those and be healthy but if you're not aware of the tendril i think you're at risk for you know regression relapse the types of things that you see in coaching sometimes it's like oh man why did i not talk about this sooner why did i not point this out and that's why we've avoided having this on the podcast so far is that it's like we see this all the time but it's hard because like I can tell that there's probably people out there right now that are like rejecting this fully. They're like, I'm totally different than that. And that's fine. You, you probably are. But I mean, based on the statistics, based on what we see, like it is something that's out there. And if we just can help one person examine that and prevent that tendril from taking over their life later, later in an unexpected way, when unexpected stress hits, then, you know, maybe it's worth it to have the uncomfortable conversation. The tendril is such a great way to phrase that. And one other thing that I was curious about in the scientific literature is I do a lot of research that that uses eating assessments to assess what we call like eating disorder pathology or eating disorder behaviors or different patterns of disordered eating. And I often think you can, you can think about this in a different way too. And this, this comes from, there was a a review article done in vegetarianism and eating disorders journal. And they said some vegetarians may be over pathologized by commonly used eating disorder assessments that interpret heightened control over intake as indicative of problematic eating behaviors. And so it's actually interesting to think about the reverse side too, where sometimes we might be picking up amongst vegetarian and vegans, like in eating disorder and eating pathology assessments that we give in research, like actually picking up elements of control that might be healthy for that person. And I think that's where it just comes into untangling the tendrils of what this means for yourself. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. So um, in other words, there might be misclassification. Exactly. Of of something that could be like unhealthy control, but perhaps for that person, and it's like truly ethical health longevity based reasons, that control is something that's powerful for them. It's connected to other tendrils of their life that are, that work for them and that are healthy. Yeah. So I guess the big message here, there's no major takeaway, but it's the role of self-awareness in In everything, especially on this topic and working with experts in understanding that like, you know, examining why you do what you do can be helpful. And for eating in particular, looking back at when it started 
I think is really powerful. Um, and, you know, I think that might give you some answers that inform action or at least inform, you know, being aware of that tendril, because if that tendril is there and you're not constantly thinking about it, it or not constantly, but just know of its existence, there's always risk. And, you know, we, we don't want to have anyone have to deal with that shit um, unless they have to. No, 100%. And you're loved, whatever you're going through. And talk it out. Yeah, talk right. it out. Talk it out. Like we are. Um, so, and as someone, uh, an athlete in their training log, this was the best coaching moment for me is when this happens. Um, I don't think I told you, but um, A and I, so the partner and I, have started a new tradition in our house. Every time we try to decide what to eat, we ask, what would David and Megan approve of and be proud of? I have also begun loudly announcing, like a battle cry, for David, every time I go back for seconds at dinner. I will beat these bad habits of eating too little. I've seen a huge improvement in the last month in my performance and in my eating. In fact, I don't feel nearly as tired in the morning and throughout the day. Um, so that that's what I think it's all about. I mean, you know, food, all these things we do, all these behavioral things, super duper, duper complicated. Um, but, you know, having fun in it, giving yourself plenty of energy to get out the door each morning, that's where it's at. And if it's awkward to be like, for David, after eating <laughs> a burger, I feel like that's a place, great place to be like, huzzah! Huzzah! Get, I love that. Yeah. After you eat your burger, or even like during just like a, mi a mid-bite, Huzzah. Oh, that energy, yes. It's kind of orgasmic, actually. It's a foodgasm. It is a foodgasm. It's so true. Um, a couple of fueling follow-ups that I thought were relevant. One is, so we talked before about um, carb storing activity and the why we um, partnered with um, Spring Energy to create awesome sauces because it was 180 calories. And we're like, okay, this is something an athlete can take every 30-ish minutes and get lots of carbs like the science says. But what I realized in my race when I didn't have any um, Spring Energy available you could just take two gels at once too. Um, so I was taking two 90 calorie gels right at once and it works so well for me. And I'm like, why did I not do this? Why did I think I had to separate them by 20 minutes when I actually kind of like the, the carb bombs during races? So you can try two gels if you are if you haven't before. The mechanics of that is impressive though. I mean, I've, I'm this sort of person, it would take me like 45 minutes to run a beer mile because yeah. my ability to chug and take down fluids that fast is pretty terrible. So I come in with the opposite approach. I like continuously and that means like every three minutes take sips on gels and it becomes i i consume a lot i basically just have like a drip iv of gels at that yeah. point because it's just running continuously and so different approaches work but that's so weird to me though because in real life outside of races and running you can just like house food unlike anyone and i could definitely house a gel in the race but it's just more fun to have a drip <laughs> yeah usually like when we're eating pizza often we'll finish and be like i could eat three more pizzas oh i could eat a lot of things. we're like yeah golden retrievers and that there is no off switch um which is fun and great and perfect but i'm surprised though that it doesn't apply in racing as well yeah but it's hard to take the liquid ones you can't yeah. do that so i that's more for like goose or awesome sauce or whatever that i do that like the liquid ones if you do that you're gonna spill it everywhere it's gonna look like you have jizz all over <laughs> yourself which is what happens with the, the liquid ones you finished a race and i was like dude what happened to you out there i had a lot of fun with my athlete chris meyer <laughs> God. apparently oh my god i'm so like, sorry you hold hands at the finish line that's a little too close <laughs> it is oh my god yeah i'm sorry chris if you're listening um but yeah no the science and sport is my favorite gel right now um in terms of consistency it's like this liquidy consistency the liquid gels are very fascinating for people that don't like gels out there goo makes liquid gels they i make a liquid cola one that my athletes love yeah and um these for me are are really game changing but like you said you can't take just a little bit because it will get all over you and it's a very awkward story to tell your spouse <laughs> after apparently especially when you cross the finish line holding hands with someone um okay next subject um this is on some recent vitamin d study retractions uh this is some cool scientific uh, drama. So I, there was a study that was shared on Twitter recently by um, Rhonda Patrick, who's like 
um, well-known nutrition expert, um, influencer type person. She's great. I think I don't really know her that well. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that a couple months later, I saw that this study that she had, she had shared that was in the international journal of sport, nutrition, exercise, metabolism on vitamin D got retracted and it got retracted with some major burns from the journal. And that made me think some interesting thoughts about like studies and what we're sharing. It's actually, it's horrifying. Anytime you publish now, I mean, I am like, I read my papers like 25 times before <laughs> I publish because it's like, I'm almost having like Theranos moments with these papers where I'm like, what am I doing wrong yeah. in publishing? Okay. But their findings were wild. Yes. Like if you believe this, vitamin D would be king of the world based off of the but king. But a lot of the studies seem to indicate vitamin D is the king of the world. So because I think people didn't really bat too much of an eye, like when you were just giving it the sniff test, you know, when you were giving it the uh, the um, armpit test right before you like shared it on like after reading the abstract. So here's the thing about vitamin D. People study vitamin D as it relates to literally everything. Yeah. You could put in, it's kind of like pregnancy where you put in pregnancy into Google and it will come up with a list of like 14,000 different things that are related to pregnancy. Same goes with vitamin D because people want to look at vitamin D in association with everything. But the challenge is that vitamin D itself is also associated with so many metrics of health. Yeah. And it becomes very, very challenging to untangle that in studies. Um, and this one was an example. But this study found a 28% increase in maximum maximum oxygen consumption in the higher vitamin D group, which is yeah. wild. But that would mean that like, if Salazar had a hold of vitamin D, he would just be giving like I don't know, like 60,000 IUs of vitamin D a day to his athletes. Like that would be how wild the study finding is. I've seen interventions like that in some of the studies where they do subcutaneous injections. But yeah, it's true. I mean, I've seen someone dissect it and said that this would essentially mean that if athletes didn't have an actual a change in fitness, given that in VO2 max, you have um, mass in the denominator, athletes would need to gain a hundred pounds. Like it, it's so beyond the pale of what seems uh, rational. Uh, a couple months later, it was retracted. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's because they made up some numbers. The, the authors claimed that part of their original data was not a, like they couldn't find it, which is like a classic example of the dog ate my plagiarized data. Or I don't know, making up numbers is extreme. I feel like they may have just gotten the numbers confused. It's yeah. actually, it's interesting. Sometimes in epidemiology, we have these things where we like number people get numbers confused in tables all the time and you have to go back and play with numbers and figure out how you can actually arrive at the faulty number and so that's my theory actually is that yeah. they just like mixed up numbers in the table somehow i mean it's just interesting to think about how the um you know analysis of science then influences what we think what we say what we do and sometimes it's not always right this also comes on the heels too. So there was a really interesting study that was published um, actually in Nature yeah. and it was relating COVID and vitamin D and that just got retracted as well due to randomization concerns. And that was kind of like a seminal study at the time looking at vitamin D. And I remember looking at that and being like, oh my gosh, the statistician I work with at Stanford, who I respect so much, yeah. would be very troubled by that study. Yeah, it's so interesting because, uh, you know, it makes me worry. I'm starting to get anxiety about everything I share. I'm like, are they going to retract my Toronto Magazine articles? Obviously not because no one gives a shit. But it's just interesting to think about like, I don't know how statistics relates to all this and the fact that vitamin D can be important. But there also seems to be a weird undercurrent just at looking at, um, you know, some of the complications in these studies and others of it being like, they're being confounding variables that kind of mess up study design. And it's an important point to bring up is, and this kind of gets back to our like data-driven and taking a data-driven approach also with anecdotal evidence yeah. as well. And so we're actually really big proponents of vitamin D. Yeah, huge. Like when we get inside tracker panels back, when we have athletes measure vitamin D, it's a big thing I look at for, you know, bone building, athletic performance, all these different things. But it's really hard to create the exact like causal mechanisms of how that relates. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we like athletes to be above 40, ideally above 50. 
yeah. with their vitamin D levels on a blood panel. And the thing about vitamin D too is, is that like, it's pretty hard to overdose on supplementation and there's like little downside in taking a reasonable amount of vitamin D. And so we still really emphasize it yeah. despite the fact that there's all these troublesome studies out there related to vitamin D. And it's so controversial for some interesting reason. I mean, there must be some unique dynamics beneath the scientific surface where maybe one of the reasons these studies are getting retracted is that people, there are non, there are vitamin D haters out there. I was going to use that word. There's a whole crew of vitamin D haters yeah. and I know a few of them and they're very good scientists actually. And it's so interesting. I mean, I think it gets back to what you're saying about when you get so bogged down in the data, you might lose the forest through the trees just a little bit. So like these studies obviously have their issues, but I mean, in coaching, we see a fundamental difference with people when they're able to raise their vitamin D. And um, yeah, I think it's some place to really focus on for yourself, but perhaps you won't find a study to tell you exactly why, which is the hard liminal space that a lot of us exist in when we're really interested in performance studies, but then also really interested in what works for people in practice. And that's why you have to take both together. And I love, I think studies are starting to increasingly combine that like data-driven approach and the anecdotal evidence in like are starting to mix those together in a transparent way. Like I think when you do that with full transparency, it can work. But actually one other to conclude the vitamin D discussion, yeah. I'm writing a manuscript right now and we found actually something called reverse causality, what we believe with vitamin D. Hmm. So we were looking at athletes who had a history of stress fractures in those athletes paradoxically had higher levels of vitamin D, oh. which makes you go hmm, for a second. That's strange. Like, isn't vitamin D supposed to be protective yeah. for bones and stress fractures? And our theory is that there's reverse causality. So people who have a history of bone, of bone stress injuries are likely taking more vitamin D uh, because of that history. And so it elevates the vitamin D in that group. And history is the biggest predictor probably. Yes. That's exactly. interesting though, yeah. because I do know there are some theories. I don't know. Actually, I don't know the scientific basis for them that vitamin D supplementation can cause calcium leaching and, and some bone loss in some people. I don't think that's, I, I haven't seen that in practice, but it's tough because where do you, like, is it reverse causality? Is it something else? And how do you know? Um, but if you're out there and thinking about vitamin D, what I would really like you to get is some athletic greens, because if you use our offer code, you get a vitamin D dropper that lasts for a year. I've been using it recently. And in the past vitamin D supplements, um, especially like, like a pill caused me incredible stomach issues to the point I couldn't do it. This dropper has caused no issues. Not only that, I've had better stomach uh, experiences than I've had in my entire life. And so um, athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Um, if you use that code, you also get the dropper in addition to the miracle athletic green stuff. Um, we've seen wild results. I've really loved it. I feel like I'm you know, 22 years old again, uh, sitting there being, you know, eating carnitas for the first time. It's and the, great. The dropper just looks really cool too. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm like MacGyvering vitamin D when I like do it for you. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually put it in Nesquik. So like I'm canceling out any health benefits <laughs> um, because I, I put Nesquik and then I put some vanilla creamer, some coffee made vanilla creamer, and then some salt and then some vitamin D drops. And it is, uh, it is the ultimate drink gasm. Do you put athletic greens in there too? No, 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 oh, no, no. I was going to say, David, I'm pretty sure Athletic Greens would have like a coronary right now yeah. with you combining Athletic Greens and Nesquik. Not the intended use. <laughs> I do Athletic Greens when I wake up in the morning and then I do the vitamin D usually after dinner or ah. um, before before dinner. So I do it later in the day um, to, to mess with that. So athleticgreens.com slash swap. We're going to get into a little bit more on that in, in just a minute. Um, but another really cool study that came out just yesterday, we're trying to keep you updated on everything that's happening. Um, this was on strength gains with the minimal dose uh, of strength work. And I think the results 
are really, really motivating, especially in things you're not uh, motivated on at baseline. And this is because we had people doing just one session of strength training uh, a week of six different exercises, only six different exercises. Yeah. And the results they found were wild. So um, participants were having 30 to 50% strength gains over the first year, and then 50 to 60% strength gains when looked at six years later. And I personally like this study because sometimes I feel like strength is daunting for athletes yes. to do. Like, I, I go through, I have this like very like on off relationship with strength training. Like we're in it, it's complicated relationship <laughs> because like when I'm training well and things are going well, I'm like super dedicated to strength training. I do it three days a week. Yeah. It's like spot on when I'm like in these like training ish periods when I'm pregnant it like kind of all falls by the wayside. And I like this because to me, like, I think when I do strength training, I'm like, it has to be three days a week, two days a week. And this is just one day a week yeah. and it works. And minimal doses in almost all the studies that you're starting to see really do work. So it doesn't just apply to strength. It also applies like if you're a lapsed endurance athlete, if you bike once a week, you're going to see pretty substantial gains. The body is made to respond to these relatively rapidly. And that's kind of amazing. It really rewards any amount of consistency and consistency doesn't mean doing it every day. It can just mean doing it weekly. And so know that it's okay to start anywhere. If you're listening to this and you're just like falling off the bandwagon anyway, you're totally good. Just do one session and it can be six exercises or it can be a 10 minute walk or jog, or it can be a 10 minute bike. And those really seem to add up. And I imagine that has to do with some fascinating um, ways that our genetic codes work like epigenetic signaling though you know we're not exactly sure and that's the really cool part when we're not exactly sure why something works but it really works uh that's the good shit and i feel like we talked about this like 80 episodes ago and we gave people the the idea that like if you're listening to this now and you're like trying to ease back into strength work just stop what you're doing yeah. and do 10 10 um push-ups either on your knees or just regular push-ups do it now and that will set the trajectory in motion i love that yeah let's get i totally forgot that we talked about that the push-up movement <laughs> Yeah. Oh, let's start a revolution of just doing the bare minimum every so often. That's kind of our whole approach to strength work. But often it leads, to, I mean, often that leads to like bigger gains and like people wanting to be motivated. But like, if you can only do the bare minimum, that's also great too. Yeah. And I think it's where a lot of breakthroughs come from. I mean, I think we've, I don't want to say, you know, been thought leaders in this area, but I think our approach to strength work has started to really, you know, take over parts of the running world, which is don't need to do much, do it consistently and keep it going in the background to support your athletics. Um, but that doesn't just apply to strength work. Probably it probably applies to just about everything. That is true. Okay. The you want to do theory of life. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off there. I got just so excited about this next topic. You had to start that laugh. You, you started the topic with a laugh. Yes. Well, it's just, we got such, this is an interesting one. And, I'm excited for this. And stick around to the end if you can, because we're going to have an ask of you, which is going to be a big one. Um, but we want to start with some competition thoughts now that race season is really getting going. Um, and this is going to tee up a broader conversation about business and media and some of the recent news that you may have heard um, out there online. Um, so this is from an email I sent to an athlete. This athlete emailed um, about essentially trying to win races. They're an amazing athlete, but um, you know it, it's something you need to constantly check in with yourself. And this is what I said back to them. Um, the key is the hard work of keeping these two things separate. Embracing competition versus wanting to win. Competition can be fun, uplifting, joyous. Wanting to win is a zero-sum game that often pushes people down dark paths in athletics and in life. So focus on the competition. We're going to train hard and be in a position to win on a good day. But the outcome of winning is purely luck slash circumstances, genetic mixing uh, with our situation in a way that is beyond our control. Putting emphasis on things beyond our control is what leads people to try to grasp at, grasp at control in other parts of life which is a specific problem for things like eating disorders, doping, et cetera. 
So keep that focus on the process. We'll train hard and race hard and celebrate no matter what, since you are awesome no matter what, and there is nothing that will ever change at a finish line. Uh, what do you think about that? Competitive mindset equals effing awesome. Fucking awesome. Why did I censor myself? <laughs> focus on the outcomes equals almost always eats people alive from the inside out. And we can have one without the other if we embrace the constant state of unconditional self-acceptance and celebration. And I think this is a really important, I mean, I talk to athletes, I think it's ubiquitous kind yeah. of like dealing with the idea of like, how do I have a competitive mindset in the framework of like also respecting the process? Yeah. And that is to me something that like, it's a, it's a paramount thing to work to as an athlete. And I love that. But I think we're going to frame this in the concept that competitive motivations are everywhere in the world. Yes. Like it, they are not just unique to running. They are across the world. And I think once you combine competitive motivations with financial incentives, it can be really tough. Like financial incentives can create really, really tough competitive motivations. Yes. And it's a lot different because when we're having like an individual running journey, these principles are essentially a choice that you make every day and you reinforce. Um, when we're talking about business, the financial incentives, particularly like of a publicly traded company or a capitalistic system, it, it can become, you actually need to win. You actually need to crush everyone. You actually need to continue growing past a point of all reasonable growth models. And that brings us to um, some of the things we're going to talk about business and the recent news in publishing. Um, so first, we'll, we'll start with personal experience that has to relate to Trailrunner Magazine, uh, one of our favorite magazines ever. Um, and I got to start writing for them back in uh, 2014 when they were a small, small little office in Carbondale, Colorado, uh, that was plucky, making uh, some money, but barely, you know, just, just enough to fund operations, like a really cool uh, business there. I remember visiting their office in 2014 and we had like a pancake brunch with them yeah. after. It was great. And walking around the office and being like this small office, and they had an incredible like atmosphere and as you said like pluck to what they were doing but it was wild to think about that this small office is powering all of trail runner like you know publication print online all that stuff and it was it was a that was eye-opening to see yeah and so uh, to, to give you the window from a writing perspective at first um i started was writing for free for quite a while um later it became 100 dollars per article for online that's still what i'm i'm paid per online article is 100 bucks and then 25 cents per word in print um that's the rate it's it, it they're lower this is on the low end of the spectrum um but that's what i make from writing and to put that into context david is one of the fastest writers i have ever met like i sit next to you on a plane and watch you write and i sit there and i'm daunted because i'm like i could do a third of what you're doing right now and it's, oh. it's good like you're churning out good writing and it's because i mean i think you're one of the most brilliant people i've ever met but I, it takes well you i'm th i was thinking i am with words like women giving birth are with poop. It just, <laughs> just comes out. You can't do anything about it. And you sit there trying to figure out if it's a, a poopy with a Y or a poopy with an I. Yeah, it's just tough. Just, it's just really hard. But I mean, you probably put three or four hours into each Trailrunner magazine article and you're getting paid $100. And that is like, in terms of your hourly rate, which we, I mean, I we could probably estimate in different ways. That is so low for your hourly rate, given your credentials and your background and everything that you do. So and I think writers face that across the board. Yeah, so print is, I mean, writing in general online media it's in an interesting spot um so Toronto magazine is was a part at the time of big stone publishing with rock and ice magazine a, a climbing and outdoors magazine um doing well but around 2018 2019 um they were bought with assurances that nothing changed but then the big thing happened in 2021 um and that was the big acquisition and in 2021 this was pocket outdoor media so pocket outdoor media came in and they were actually backed 
by $150 million from Sequoia Heritage, which led their Series B funding. And I'm always interested in, in this stuff because I've like, you know, done some work in Silicon Valley before. Also backed by a venture firm called Zone 5 Ventures, <laughs> which is a, I was like, this has to be sports related. Clicked on their website yesterday. I was doing some sleuthing and they do indeed do like sports tech related stuff. And I was fascinated by that name because I was like, they must have like a polarized investment strategy, <laughs> given that they, they chose the name Zone 5. Alan Cousins would have like a coronary yeah. listening to that. He'd be like, where's the pyramidal approach? Yeah. So Zone 5 is like above VO2 max, like the maximum. I'm like, that doesn't seem sustainable. I feel like that's kind of a little bit of a secret. Like you should have a little bit more of a diversified approach. Zone 5 should only be 1% of your investment strategy. The rest of it should be Zone 1 and 2. I, I want Zone 2 ventures to invest in the SWAT podcast. Um, but at some point, I think actually Pocket Outdoor and Outside Inc. I'm not sure exactly what the trajectory was, though, but it became out Outside Inc., um, which is this really big company. And they had this mission to, just like Netflix and Amazon Prime, Outside will create and distribute distinctive content to a worldwide aud audience on any connective device. So this really big tech savvy, uh, innovative approach it was their goal. And they had tons of content because they bought Outside Magazine, they bought Outside TV, they bought Gaia GPS, Schroner, Backpacker, like 40 other different magazine titles, including one called Vegetarian Times, which <laughs> I just learned about. And it's kind of topical for our discussion. Yeah, so topical. Um, so, you know, they were, as from the outside world, my life didn't change because I'm insulated by, you know, the editor at Schroner, who's freaking amazing. Um, but when this type of big acquisition happens, you, if you've ever followed business, if you've ever followed media, you can kind of understand that things are going to change. Um, and so in early 2022, I heard that outside was going to be moving into NFTs. And this was the moment in which we were like, things are changing. Yeah, what is like, happening? I was like, this is not good. Not because NFTs are necessarily a bad idea, but because what is the relevance? What is the connection and association? Um, I am a crypto skeptic in some ways there, but like I'm, I'm of the group that thinks Ethereum might have utility in like proof of use or whatever. I, I don't, I forgot the exact term. Um, and Bitcoin is interesting. The NFTs and stuff, I'm like, I just don't see it right now. And I mean, maybe, maybe there's a reason, but why is outside doing this? I was gonna say to me, like NFTs and the connection to the outdoors is like as incongruous as like donuts and broccoli. Like <laughs> they're just like so separate. And they even had this quote. So uh, outside said, join us as we build the first, the world's first NFT marketplace that dedicated to the outdoors. We'll be minting with the world's renowned athletes, brands, and nonprofits, all designed for less screen time and more outside <laughs> time. And I was confused. I was like, how are NFTs bringing about less screen time? Yeah. Or outside time and i'm still i'm still confused by that and i am purely flummoxed and the point isn't that this was bad i don't know enough to know if it's bad the point is okay if you're doing that there must be a reason and it must be something to do with finances or like an understanding of the future and what the company is going to look like in the future that means that you know my little plucky articles are not necessarily relevant anymore or something um and so last week a new piece of um you know, news came out that you might have read about, which is we're, we're laying the groundwork for. Outside Magazine laid off, I think, 10 to 20% of all employees. I'm not exactly sure. Um, Magazine itself is transitioned only to print. So no no of the three people that work at Toronto were laid off, but um, they're, or they're, they're, not print only. They're print, I was gonna say, I was gonna say digital only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Their magazine has been stopped. Their print magazine is stopped. So you'll never see a print magazine of Toronto again. They went out on top. It was amazing with their last episode, um, you know, um, edition, but it's really sad. I loved this magazine long before I started writing for them. And I think to provide broader context here, you're probably sitting here thinking about, well, yeah, like every, no shit. <laughs> every other single tech company has had tons of layoffs and that's like the current tech climate. And 
like economic climate that we're in right now, I think about Wahoo Fitness layoffs. And we know a number of people that have gotten laid off from Wahoo Fitness. I did a little sleuthing yesterday and it's actually hard to find their exact numbers, but they have around 200, 300 employees and laid off approximately 50, which is as high as like 25% of their company getting laid off. Netflix has had been in the news a ton for layoffs of their employees. And this is just something that's happening. It's ubiquitous right now across economics. It's a continuation of what's happened in media for quite a while. I mean, running times went out um, a long while ago. Tons of women's running already transitioned away from this. Um, A lot of other magazines already have. Clearly the writing was on the wall. Obviously I'd love Toronto to have a magazine forever. Maybe that was the right decision, but I think it points out a broader point about um, how this competitive environment works. And I wanted to read um, a quote from Uh, the outside CEO when they announced these layoffs across the company. Outside has grown tremendously over the past two years with 20 acquisitions and a quadrupled paid membership to over 800,000 paid subscribers. But growth often necessitates change. In line with what many in the media industry have seen as the future of media, we are making a concerted shift away from a high volume of print to a greater focus on immersive video and digital storytelling. Okay. And to me, I get that. Like, it kind of makes sense. Like, when I think about print, I think about, like, an environmental nightmare in terms of, like, printing magazines. And I, it's been a long, long time since I've personally read a magazine in print, and so I get that. But I think what I think about constantly, and this is just a reality for any company like Outside or Pocket Outdoor Media or Showrunner, is you constantly have to think about growth and how challenging that is and how that flips the competitive and like financial incentives in many different directions. Well, yeah, especially because that relevant term there is 800,000 paid subscribers already. Especially in the outdoor world. How big is the community? Like, what is your growth potential? You can't reach, it's not 300 million. Your denominator is not every citizen of the United States. Your denominator is pretty small when you're talking about some of these brands. And if you already have 800,000, what is your true growth potential? I think they're saying it's big, we'll see. Um, But it creates this this problem, this... um, situation when I think media companies start to do these pivots being like, okay, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way, and lose sight of the fact that the actual way is to create really cool shit done by cool people for cool people. And I think just as in like the modern world, when I think about politics, I think this applies also to the business world as well. It's really interesting to think about history in the context of this. And this has been like a historical shift for a long time in the world of media. Yeah, Like you think about Deadspin, you think about Gawker, you think about like all these different companies in their outside is following a very similar trajectory. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a story as old as time. Uh, I th- This to me, I think, and, and the reason that this is relevant, so we're going to talk about Deadspin, which is a, a sports blog founded in 2005. Um, the reason we're going to talk about it is because I think it is the future of media and uh, it'll tee up some things we're going to uh, ask from you. Um, so Deadspin was founded in t- 2005. Um, it later became a part of the Gawker network of sites, so like Gawker, Jezebel, um, a, a few others. And it, it was immensely successful. I was a fan from the very first day, read almost every post. It helped form my writing style, like uh, what I liked in sports, what I liked in pop culture. It wrote not just about sports, but about everything. It wrote about politics, talk, spoke tr- or talked truth to power, everything else. It was a great, great, great website. And then Gawker hit challenges when they published. They published a Hulk Hogan sex video, and that turned Peter Thiel onto them. And Peter Thiel bankrolled a lawsuit, and uh, Gawker lost for $100 million. But this comes on, I mean, Peter Thiel was infamously trying to, like, just 
push out Gawker for the longest time. Yeah. And so like this, this sex video, I think was like a convenient excuse to do that. But this had been part of supposedly Peter Thiel's mission for a long time. Yeah, that's a, another topic, but that this free market libertarian uh, thinker, like Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel's a very rich, like I think he's co-founder of PayPal actually with- He's very, he, very, very rich. He was with Elon back then. Um, and they're the ones that are trying to get rid of media. Um, just classic um, cognitive dissonance there. But Gawker went on financial troubles. They were purchased by Univision. And then in 2019, Univision, um, they severed off the these media companies like Deadspin, and they were purchased by a private equity group. Um, and after that, all shit hit the fan for Deadspin and these other sites. And they were doing, so in that, so as they were purchased by the private equity group, I feel like private equity groups often come in and they try to make things more efficient for companies. Yeah. And so as they were like creating this idea of efficiency, they had a like very similar, like we're going to pivot to a video and like videos are going to be like one of our main sources of like revenue and bringing people in. And in that process too, they started like auto playing advertisements. They were moving away from like gawker classically had like people were reporting outside of sports all the time like yeah. you would see an article on baseball right alongside an article on politics and that was just what they were known for and they started moving away from that like emphasizing writers just to stick to sports yeah and so when you say efficiency what we actually mean is not giving a f about the people um and what they care about and what made deadspin successful in the first place so they said stick to sports they said you're only right rob's right about sports on October 29th, 2019, uh, the writers of Deadspin only wrote non-sports stories, um, and the editor was fired, and then the entire staff quit um, on mass. And that was a truly sad day for the future of media because it was really seeing what happens when efficiency comes in in things like barstool sports, which is a click-based model, advertising model, um, it runs up against the reality that to generate those number of clicks, you have to create shit content because it's the only way to do it. You can develop um, a really passionate following of a small group by doing quality work, um, but on the internet, it incentivizes the most clickbaity stuff ever when you're doing it based on you get a fraction of a cent per advertisement shown to a you know one set of eyes in the ad model really it really drove home the ad model stops people from creating really cool things and so a year later these disgruntled editors they launched uh they launched defector which is not gawker anymore and it's a totally separate new entity and it's amazing yeah so it's defector like is the best warming. yes um in the way defector was structured so this media company is okay screw ads. We're not going to do ads. Um, we're going to do a subscription model. And you've probably seen that things like Substack are starting to come into the media landscape. You need to subscribe to the stuff you enjoy um, if you actually enjoy it, because that's the only way that this is going to be sustainable for cool, creative people. So for Defector, um, it's employee owned. They had $3.2 million in revenue last year with only 30,000 of that from the ads. The rest of it came from um, subscriptions. And I think that that's the future of media. Like they're, they're, and they specifically say that our goal is not to grow indefinitely. Um, their goal is just to cool, create cool shit with their friends. And um, they've had a ton of success. But if you're viewing it through a private equity lens, if you're viewing it through a venture capital lens, it's probably not successful because yes, it grows the first year, but how are you going to continue 30% year over year growth when you're creating cool shit for a small group of people? It's just not going to happen. And that's a major problem in media if you want to avoid the bar stoolification of you know things you care about and i think media like media in the sense of like defector are starting to flip that growth mindset from an element of like like subscribers money financial gain to a growth mindset of like what can we create yes. that's like cool and meaningful and creative and it's like a growth mindset of like let's just write what we want to write and hopefully like make the world a slightly better place in that process and i i am like heartwarmed to see more and more 
people kind of approaching this this approach, this yeah. model. Yeah. And I think it'll resonate with people it's supposed to resonate to, but it won't resonate with everyone. And so, you know, if you don't like least common denominator stuff, like our big ask to start is subscribe to the stuff that people do that you care about. Um, I believe Free Trail does this, Ginger Runner Live and running, um, a number of um, different things in running do this type of thing. Um, but then in every area, if you run up into a paywall and you actually like the person writing for it, try to give them a few bucks. Even if it's one buck, like that stuff adds up. And that's the only way that the media ecosystem is going to survive, you know, this onslaught from venture capital, NFT efficiency mindset um, that, you know, this growth brain that eats away at like the content that you might actually enjoy consuming. So you probably, if you're a student, you probably see where we're going. <laughs> we are turning back to the podcast and we've been talking about this for a long time. Like we started with this, this podcast as we're just sitting down as like having a date on a Tuesday morning recording and releasing this to you, but it's wildly grown. Yeah. And that's been amazing. And I think we've recognized that this needs to be a priority and it needs to be something that we invest in for ourselves so that we can keep releasing this content. Like, every week for hopefully the rest of our lives yeah, because it, it's fun. It might be. And also seeing our friends, some of our friends get laid off last week makes us be like, shit, maybe we can go do more. Maybe it can go beyond this podcast in the future and be something like Defector where we're providing lots of cool things in a place for our favorite creators to create. Um, we're not sure of exactly um, what, what path that's going to take, but it also involves distancing, distancing ourselves a little bit from the ad model over time. So good example, Athletic Greens. We truly love Athletic Greens. Like it is no lie. How many companies are there like that, that I actually would just like um, unabashedly say go for no matter what? It's probably not that many. And with Athletic Greens, we were going through the process of, we have like a sales-based model with them. And we were asking them like about how many sales we've had so that we can understand. And they sent us to a website and what number did they tell us? You you clicked on it and you were like, it's zero. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second. I've had like tons of people message me on Instagram saying yeah. they've bought Athletic Greens from our account. And long story short, it wasn't, they had made a mistake. They were very kind in correcting that mistake. We've actually- I sold mean, it hasn't been fully corrected yet. Yeah. But the point- But being, we have actually sold a lot of Athletic Greens. But, but the point is, we're still at the mercy of things that we have no insight into. And like, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that stuff. We're still going to pimp athletic greens forever because we love it. But but it made us think about yeah. two points. So one, we're at the mercy, like people can just tell us whatever. And I mean, athletic greens is they're fixing it. They're being great. But like, if we didn't work with a company that was like as kind and consumer minded as athletic greens, like someone could just tell you, oh yeah, you sold five yeah. straps. Like in when in reality, like you sold more. And I think we recognize the frustrating nature of that. But also I think we recognize like I am the world's worst salesperson, <laughs> like horrible. If I was selling cars, I'd be like, do you really need that car? Yeah. Like, don't you think something more economical would make sense? Like I would be so bad at selling cars and I don't think we want to be cars salesmen on this podcast. Like we like selling athletic greens. We like selling whoop because we believe in the products, but there's not that many more products out there and where we're like, we're going to do an ad read to support this product because we think it makes our listeners lives better. Yeah. And we refuse to do ad reads. We just yeah. like talk about shit naturally. And that only so far, like we had a lot of companies reach out and we're like, it's just not going to overlap. Like, and so, um, you know, in, in hopefully in terms of long-term vision, what this is going to look like to start is, you know, us doing this podcast, us doing a few other things in the future. Maybe it can go greater. You know, we're going to, we're hiring someone that's a brilliant. We're hiring an assistant and she's amazing. I actually don't know if we should say it's her like first week on the job. So, but she is a, she's a boss beast. She's a boss beast. She's a force in the running world. We had our first meeting with her on Monday and I left and I was like, huzzah, yeah. this is so great. But I think, I mean, I think it gets to the point that like we are starting to recognize that we need to invest in, 
this podcast. We need to invest in people that can help support this podcast. And it's important to like take that leap. Yeah. So uh, all of that is to tee up patreon.com slash swap. Uh, we're setting up a system where this will be a trial run into if we want to expand this in the future. There are $5 and $10 tiers. So patreon.com slash swap SWP. Um, there, the tiers are called the Woohoo Crew and Huzzah Superstars. Um, and what we're going to do is release some bonus content each week that just goes out to them. That's going to be 20, 30 minutes talking about running sports politics in quick hitter question and answer fashion to start. Um, in the future, there'll be things like newsletters and merch. Um, but if even if you don't care about that stuff, if you listen to the podcast and like it, it would mean a lot. Patreon.com slash swap. This is our idea of what can we do in the future with this? Can this be more towards like our profession when we have a kid where we coach, but like it, we don't do a million other things to try to make money. We don't write for other places. We control our own creative future. And I think it's for us, it's investing in that hope of like providing inclusive, inclusive, loving, funny content that people enjoy. And as you said, like having the power to do that ourselves, not at the mercy of ad reads or, you know, a company or other places, because I think the way we believe in the way that we can do that. And it takes like it takes making that leap and making that investment to, to just try it out and like yeah. test the waters <laughs> and see if this, see if this is what, how we want, what we want to explore. So we absolutely love you all. No obligation to do this. If you can't afford it and you still want the, uh, the bonus content, email me, um, contact, we'll figure it out and make sure it works because this isn't about money. We, we want to expand this. Uh, it's more about how can we do this forever? I think it's really similar to like the start of the podcast yeah. too. When we were open and we were like, this is just a science experiment. I mean, we believe in ourselves because like, <laughs> like that's what we've been trained to do. And that's what we like, you know, it's, it's been an investment to like have that concept, but it's in a science experiment and we're excited to see where this goes. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. So on Patreon, you'll get a lot of extra stuff. Um, we're kind of unsure exactly how it's going to look over time. There's a discord server apparently, which is like, if people want to talk to others about different topics, I mean, we have a lot of really cool listeners. Maybe they want to connect. I don't know if people are going to be using that. Um, I think it's a cool, I mean, we have people that just our swap community is special. Like yeah. the people that send us emails, I'm like, I wish you guys could all connect in some way. And I think that's something that will work towards over time. Discord server, I had not heard of. Discord yeah. server to me sounds like we're going to be like communicating with foreign nations or something <laughs> on there. The way that it's described is like a server, yeah. but it's kind of like a Slack chat uh, is what it comes down to. It just looks a little bit more like foreign-y. But uh, yeah. I mean, I think it could be a really cool way to like communicate with with other podcast listeners and, and our audience. And So we'll see. We're going to build it all out over time. We'll have bonus stuff going up later this week so if you sign up now you'll get that bonus like episode when it comes out um and we'll go from there at the very least you know hopefully supporting us um you know that would mean a lot but also don't worry about it if not uh we're totally we love you no matter what this isn't a uh this is why we're not good salespeople. yeah what we're saying yeah like, i, I exactly. can't even sell this but i'm you know i'm more comfortable selling like the fact that we could we're hoping to like provide love in this context and like selling a product yeah like to me like this is horrifying and i'm sitting here like oh i don't know if i can do this but it's at least better than selling like a random like I don't know, piece of sports tech or something. <laughs> it's so true. Okay, so let's do a big shoes conversation now. Um, this is kind of a sexy topic because we talked about a lot of the science of shoes last week. Now we want to get into personal anecdote and breaking down shoes one by one uh, because I actually think shoes really matter. I agree. And I think there's so many like different personal associations and different associations with shoes. And we certainly have built those up over time, but we also accumulate this like wealth of data from athletes that we yeah. coach and like how they're interacting with shoes. And we'll weave that in along the way. I will say this though. So we'll talk like really, really openly about like Nike, Hoka, Saucony, Adidas, New Balance, kind of like 
the big shoe companies because they're big. Like <laughs> our podcast does not touch them at all whatsoever. I feel like it's hard for me to like scrutinize companies that are smaller, like Speedland, Dynafit, Dinafit, like some of these other companies, because I just don't want to do that. They're small companies. Like we're coming in with like an N of one approach and like a data collected from a small coaching team. And, it, and that just doesn't feel right. Well, to me. I love what a lot of these companies are doing. So we'll give them some props at times. Too. Yeah, okay. we'll give them kudos um, only. Yeah, kudos only. Um, or some or some light jokes in there. That's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, like usually we are saying, okay, this is the science. Here's our biases. This is all our biases mixed with just a little bit of anecdote, anecdotal and experience. And this is a lot of humor. It's, yeah. When we talk about biases, it's a lot easier to work in humor. Yeah. So uh, especially after doing that big ask of you, let's just get our biases out there and start shitting on things. No, not really. But um, for me, my first experience with shoes uh, being fundamental to my growth is Nike discontinuing the Lunar line of shoes. So you might remember the Lunar Racer and the Lunar Trainer. I used to wear these for everything. I would wear them in 50K trail races, these little road shoes. I wore them to win way too cool in a muddy year. It was my shit. And then when Nike discontinued them, my career suffered, <laughs> at least for a year, because I wasn't able to find something that worked for me in the same way. And I think I've grown around that over time, but I still wake up in tears sometimes. I say it's like one of those breakups that's still triggering to you. Yeah. Like you will always have a first love for Nike, Nike leaner shoes. And I can't, like, I am never going to satisfy that part in our relationship. And I've just, I've come to peace with yeah, that. Yeah, I used to have shoegasms every single day when I put them on. And now it's just totally dry down there. <laughs> it's, it's true. Meanwhile, for me, I had a different experience with Hoka. So yeah. we, we ran for Nike for a long period of time. I personally love Nike road shoes, especially like Nike Pegasus for me. We'll get into that. Like it is for me, like the shoe of all shoes. And yeah. I have a love affair with Nike Pegasus. We had an interesting contract situation. Hoka or Nike would sign one of us, but not both of us. Hoka would sign both of us. Which one would it sign, Megan? I, I mean, we don't need to go into that. But, you know, for for, for perspective there, in 2016, I was one of the top, like, I was on the Ultra Runner of the Year voting, like, an 11th or something. So it points out that, like, these contracts are damned hard. And we weren't getting, I wasn't, we weren't even getting shoes at that point. I know. Yeah. Like, we, we had to buy Nikes at but times. They, were, they were giving us a salary, so that was nice. But, uh, so then we transitioned to Hoka, and Hoka was kind of like, we'll sign both of you, but we won't sign either one of you. And so it was, we were, I was kind of like, this is a conundrum. I want to run a Mikey Pegasus. Like, what do we do? And so we wound up signing with Hoka. And I really struggled running Hoka shoes at first. Yeah. I think like for me and now, actually I run in Spago trails and they are my favorite shoes. Yeah. You love the Hoka. I, I love, I mean, I love the Hoka trail shoes. I yeah. cannot touch the Nike road or, or the, the Hoka. Hoka road shoes because I have severe hamstring issues in them. And yeah. you know, that's an N of one experience and they've obviously worked tons since we signed with them, but just being very open about my experience and it shows that shoes matter. Like it was very challenging. And you, for me I mean, in, you were, time. in 2016, you won the sub ultra trail owner of the year and the ultra trail owner of the year in the same year. And so you were coming in as like a high profile athlete and you were trying to get them to make new shoes for you, like a prototype that would work for you. And it didn't happen. And it's like frustrating, but it also shows how individual all this is because stuff that really works for others was not working for you. So do you want to go through by like brand by brand and talk about some shoes? Let's do this. This is going to be really fun. We're not sure exactly where this is going. We didn't review this at all. We just uh, put some brands down. Uh, let's start with Nike. The Pegasus as a road shoe is so damn fast. I absolutely love the Pegasus. Yeah. It is like, I'm glad we're starting here because it's actually really hard to talk about any shoe after you talk about the Pegasus because the Pegasus is like music to my feet. Yeah. I love it. But you know, it has, for me, the recent models have been too narrow in the toe box. So as we're, I never thought I'd be one of those people, those people that all are under every shoe post that's like, when is the shoe toe boxing get wider? But something happened in Nike's that it just rubs my big toe. 
And so I'm really hopeful because apparently in the 39, the model that's going to come out in June in the US and has come out internationally already, that's totally corrected. I'm really hopeful that the new Pegasus is going to be the shoe that's useful on non-technical trail and roads um, and basically everything. Like I have used the Pegasus for fast running workouts and it is better as a fast running shoe, as we'll get into, than for me, the Hoka Carbon shoe in terms of its actual performance, which is pretty shocking. I think this React foam that's in the Pegasus it, is really good. The foam is spot on. I actually, I'm pleased about that too. I have an exceedingly narrow foot. And so the new Pegasus model or like the the trend of Pegasus models has worked for me. But I would say in California, when we were running um, like and doing a lot of our, our trail racing in California, I wore the Pegasus for every single trail race. If I did that now, my ankles would be so fucked <laughs> because the, because as the Pegasus have, got, have gotten narrower, I recognize that I can't wear them on yeah. trail because it's like an ankle sprain. It's, it's like a ticket to ankle sprain city. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, on their trail shoes, the Wild Horse is a shoe we both really enjoy in terms of its speed. It's fast. It, it, I get so sore. It is after hard, hard as a rock. Yeah. I had this realization. I was like, I I actually loved the early models of the Wild Horse. I thought it was a great shoe. The newer versions to me are so freaking hard. And I had that realization when I was walking around the house in the Wild Horse. Yeah. And it sounded like I was walking in high heels yeah. as I was walking. It was so loud in a way that like no other shoe has been. And I was like, it's because this is rock solid. I love that test of like the, like for me, it's like just tapping my knuckle against it. And if it sounds like you're hitting a piece of like steel, it might be a problem. And it gets back to a broader point. I'm not sure the rationale behind rock plates. The sh you have a shoe on, unless that's a really narrow shoe, you don't need extra shit preventing practicing your foot. I've never heard of any of our athletes having major foot issues from hitting a rock on like a, a shoe that's already protective. Granted, I'm sure there are some out there, but I think um, rock plates are wildly overprescribed in these in some of these shoes, which makes the trail shoes so much worse than the road shoes. Basically, every company we're talking about will find some road shoes that we like. In the trail shoes, it's like, this is an overproduced piece of shit. It's like I, listening to like the worst pop music you've ever heard. Totally agree. Two other things in the Mickey Wild Horse. I have noticed this. So I wear them for Tiger Fall. Yeah. They are a fast shoe. And you rent so fast. I, I, I've recognized though, that if you get them wet, they become a little bit less of that. Like you're like, it's like such a firm surface that you're running on. And so before Tiger Claw, I was like, do I give my shoes a shower? These were like yeah. totally new shoes. And I was like, should I stick them in the shower and let them dry overnight? And I was like, this is too complicated. Let's not risk it. The outsoles of Nike shoes, a little bit like a slip and slide yes. in wet conditions. Granted, I don't care about that that much. Like I always think lugs and, and traction aren't really the biggest shoe. All I want is like enough grip to feel confident, I don't need a shoe that glues me to the ground. Also, if you struggle with ankle sprains and you're wearing the Nike Wild Horse, I would consider wearing a different shoe. I see loads, not just, I mean, I've personally experienced that, but athletes I coach, the the like Nike Wild Horse is a heat-seeking ankle sprain <laughs> machine. And if you're struggling with that, I would try a different shoe. Um, so the Kyger just looks rough. I, it's too, not enough shoe for me. Uh, we're, we're both like a little bit more shoe than that. Whenever I see athletes wearing it, I'm like, how how are you gonna wear that for 50 miles people are so much more efficient than i am yeah i saw an athlete wear them that i was racing like a competitive athlete for a 50k and i was like huh, good luck with that that's a good choice i got i got pleased seeing them wear yeah. on the in general line. we like uh, slightly more supportive shoes for the long distances just because there is some evidence that it can protect against muscle damage if not it just lets you be less efficient like at the end of races at least the 50k i did last week it's like you clomp a little bit and it's nice to have a shoe that lets you clomp yeah. um next one the peg trail the petrol three i think is now what they're on and it uses the same foam as the um pegs so the peg roads so it's very responsive it's very fast it's also very heavy because it's a much bigger piece of foam um i think that so this is one of our our nike athletes often wear this shoe it seems like a great shoe it's just 
a lot of shoe. Drew Holman wears it. Anything that Drew wears, I'm like, yeah. it must be magic. I mean, he's done great performances. And I've had athletes that really enjoy and appreciate the shoe. It seems to be a mixed bag. I've had some athletes that experience knee pain, actually, randomly. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's because it feels like you're running on stilts. <laughs> the the stack height on that shoe is so high. I think they're like 11.8 ounces, it's, too, so they're heavy. And they're heavy. It actually reminds me a lot. I was doing research for this podcast yesterday. And the Nike Shocks, I posted this on Instagram. Uh around the time of 02 like yeah. nike shocks were a big deal and they were like you if you remember the nike shocks that's what it feels like i feel like to me running in the pig drill <laughs> you're just like running on this like stack height of a shoe that it like feels bouncy and springy for like i, I don't know i'm just not a fan uh yeah and i mean i think it gets back to why is this trail shoe so complicated like the pegasus is amazing make a wider pegasus so that you don't spray and they used to do that actually with some lugs and it's amazing shoe and i think yeah, they used to, right? Like, and long before trail running hit, like, mainstream, they made a Pegasus trail shoe that was incredible. It was basically just, like, Pegasus with lugs. And I actually wore it to play field hockey. Great yeah. shoe. It's like, bring that back. Well, Why I'm is sure it so complicated? They probably didn't sell much at the time. But I think now things would be different. That being said, who knows what the market is. We're talking out of our ass a little bit. Um, and then let's go to Hoka. Um I'm so sad about the Evo Speedgoat. Evo, I have had a love affair with the Evo Speedgoat shoes, and it's a good thing because we have 12 of them downstairs in my size. We found them from all over France, Italy, Europe. Meanwhile, I'm on my last legs. At Quicksilver the other week, the 50K, someone commented afterwards, how old are those shoes? And I'm like, I don't know, probably 600 miles. But here's the thing. They work at 600 miles. Like, I probably put, I like very rarely do this. I probably put 800 miles on my last pair because it's like, I have to milk every single penny out of the Evo Speedgoats because I only have a limited quantity. And I feel like they perform just as well as mile 800 as they do at mile yeah. one. And that's a good thing. But the problem is, so the Speedgoat 5s came out and they said, this is going to be like the Evo. And some people really like the Speedgoat 5s. But you know what? It's not the same. The true believers out there will understand. Okay. It I just feels different. You are the only one. Every single athlete that I've had that wears the Speedgoat 5s, actually maybe except for one athlete, has loved it. Yeah, but you don't know the true believers. The true believers that are right, like the Evo Speedgoat is special. Uh, the Speedgoat 5 is just a little bit firmer, a little bit less responsive. Um, it's not cutting it for me, so I'm, I'm having to move on. Um, but maybe they'll bring back the Evo Speedgoat. I heard that they did a big purchase of a the Matrix Upper that was preventing them from creating this shoe. So there might be an Evo Speedgoat in the future. If anyone from Hoka is listening, if you do this, we will forever promote you without any money like we will get thousands of people to buy your shoes first day um torrent and zinal the hoka torrent and zinal work well for some efficient athletes um ashley brosevin on the team swears by the torrent i saw um john rea who was at the quad rock 50 was wearing the zinal um they seem like good shoes for some they don't really work for me because yeah, i just need a little bit more support but they're i've seen great. a lot of athletes like those shoes i think they're great especially like i feel like marathon 50k even like 50 mile distance they work well um i think they're like a great shoe for that approach um and then the road shoes a little bit uncertain about. So I like recommending the Clifton to people. The Clifton is a great supportive shoe that's soft, that gets you through your miles. Um, but outside of that, I think it's not necessarily the best lineup still. Yes. Like, and this is speaking from an end of one approach. Yeah. They were horrific. For you. For me. Um, I feel like my cadence dropped. I clomped. Like, I think it's different for me. Like when I take like these, like, you know, higher stack height, more cushion shoes on trails, you have the variability of train of terrain to alter like the biomechanics that you're having. Yeah. For me, the repetitive turnover in like more cushioned, more stack height related shoes with the rocker bottom was horrific. It for just me. didn't work for it you. It did not work for but me. But it works so well for some. That being said, I made the comment earlier. So I wore their carbon shoe for workout here. And so I had heart rate data on the same route. And for me, it was five to 10 seconds slower per mile 
than the Nike Pegasus. And I've seen that across other athletes which too. Which yeah. is worrisome when you think about the Hoka pros that are having to deal with, maybe they have new prototypes that are better because I haven't, I haven't tried the next generation, the one that came out this last year. Um, but for me, it's just not the same. Meanwhile, Nike's carbon shoes are oh, so those good. are so fast. Like by the, like, no matter what you think about Nike, the Vaporfly, Alphafly, both worth it. They are unreal shoes. They are in, uh, wild. I consider 20% of my marathon coaching to be to get people in the Alphafly and Vaporfly yeah. and like to push that consistently as a key point in marathon training. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a broader point about uh, carbon plates on trails. We're going to, maybe we'll talk about this in a bonus episode that will be bonus, on Patreon. Yeah. Um, but I think that this is going to change the game eventually. I don't know if we're here yet. People are liking the Hoka Tecton, the one that does have carbon plates. I'm going to try it today, actually. So excited. After the podcast. I can't wait. I'm giddy. Maybe this will be my shoe. <laughs> um, but maybe it won't. Um, Nike's coming out with one. All these brands have some in the works. And I think once they nail it, like Nike first nailed that first 4% shoe, um, trails are going to change forever. We're not there yet, though. Um, the ones I have felt are, are clunky and heavy, um, interestingly. I think it's hard to balance stability with the carbon plate. But you know, I wore the vapor flies in a trail race that had pretty technical trails and it was fine for me. So, you know, I think there is a, there is a step in the evolutionary process where we don't just go from, I think sometimes shoe companies right now are trying to go from, okay, like, you know, when humans were in the ocean and then uh, now we're on top of some mountains, they're trying to go straight from in the ocean to be on top of the mountains. I think there's an intermediary step where so true. we have like a beach dwelling <laughs> version. That's going to be fantastic. And it's the old Pegasus trail shoe. Bring it back and just put a carbon plate in that thing. Yeah, oh my God. Uh, talk about gasming. Okay. So we're going to wrap it. We, we talked about those two brands more because the ones we're more experienced with, given that we've ran for them both. Um, we're going to rapid fire through some other brands now in alphabetical order. You want to do this? Let's do it. Uh, we'll start with Adidas. Fast road shoes. I um, like their road shoes. Those road shoes are great. You know, their trail shoes are a different story. Yeah. So I won a pair of trail shoes at the race, and I, I think it, it's like their their racing shoe. But I tried it. It's like a slipper. I, when I, I think, I believe Stephen Kirsch ran Western States 100 in the last year, at least part of it. It's like, people are such different runners. And it gets back to, don't listen to our advice at all if you're different than us. Like, I would break after five miles, let alone 100. It's amazing that people are able to wear these shoes for the long distances they do. Actually, Adidas has a similar conundrum to, to Nike. I like their solar boost shoe is like, I'm kind of neutral on it. It feels a little bit bottom heavy to me. Yeah. Um, but like, just put it like, it's, there's actually some like decent traction on that shoe. I'm like, just put a little more lugs on that. It would yeah. be great. Well, I'm a little bottom heavy, Megan, and you love <laughs> me. So why are you judging Adidas this way? Okay. My current crush is on craft shoes. Um, okay. Can we, we're just going to, before you even dive into this, yeah. you have an exceedingly high crush on craft shoes. And this is wild to me because you have actually like never even worn their shoes before. I've never even seen them. This is from like online dating only. You're looking at a picture and you're like, I'm going to marry this person that I see on Tinder. Yeah. That is how your relationship right now is going with craft. You've never even worn their shoes. Well, maybe marry them. Maybe wear their skin as a jacket <laughs> in terms of this obsession. Um, I've just read a lot about them. They use really cool foams. They do some really cool things with their shoes and David Blaney wears them. I can't wait. I'm going to get some soon. I'll report back on what I think of craft. That's my new hope because someone told me that they're like the Evo speed goats at, um, that I really trust. So we'll, we'll see. Um, next, this is not in alphabetical order. I was just going to say this. Where are we going? Uh, Speedland. Uh, I really want to try their new prototype. They have one that's coming out. That's all PBAX foam. So it's the 4% or the um, ZoomX foam. Um, and it's a wider piece of it. Looks really cool. I've heard good things from athletes. Um, I haven't been able to get my hands on it yet. So Speedland guys, you're out there listening. Hey, send them to me. Um, they also seem really cool. They support athletes really well. I really like their, their company mission. They actually, I mean, I think this is like a standard contract. They often give athletes equity in their company. And I feel like it's a great way for athletes like to be invested in the business and to learn more about it. And, you know, I don't know where that's going in terms of like their, I mean, they seem like they're doing great things, but I, I appreciate that model. But I also think Speedland is kind of 
the uh, Patreon That's versus, true. you know yes. what I mean? In terms yeah. of like, or um, crowdfunded work, you know, subscription I really model. appreciate it. And yeah. And I, they're putting themselves out there. They're respect, investing in themselves. I respect that a lot. Yeah, so go, go speak about um, Ultra. <laughs> the thing I was thinking about them in, in comedy, they say that like, if you really go in on a character, you're really committed to the bit. Ultra is really committed to the bit of zero drop. They're all in on zero. They drop. really are because they have shoes with massive stack height and zero drop. And I'm just kind of like, huh? Yeah. That being said, I kind of want to try them. Oh, they're very soft. Actually. And I feel like you love soft shoes. I worry about it though. Anytime anyone on the team has like an Achilles or calf injury, I'm like, please tell me you're not wearing ultra shoes yeah. for this. So, I mean, I feel like I do see it take a toll on like the, the lower legs, but that, then again, I have athletes that train in them consistently and are fine. And so I think it just really depends on like resilience, lower leg anatomy, yeah. all that. I wonder, I wonder about the scientific rationale of having zero drop when your shoes sometimes have like 32 millimeters of stack height. I agree. It seems like it probably vanishes. It I think it vanishes. But like, you, can, you can strike, foot strike anywhere But I you still want. see people with Achilles issues in that combo. Interesting. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I really want to try ultras. I, you know, respect the company. It's a cool company. Also, I like walking around in ultras. One, they look cute. Yeah. And I feel like when I'm walking around in zero drop, I'm like, I'm strength building. Oh yeah. We do have those ultra shoes for walking. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, lots of people run really fast in them. Uh, next, Asics. I recently been road running in the nova blast 2 it's a very soft shoe um that's comfortable and pretty fast uh it seems like a really good one i i, I like it and you know we just didn't turn on to asics they have kind of some softer foams seems like a good company it's great i used to wear the nimbus all the time in high school and college yeah. it was like my go-to shoe and i actually recently tried to bring it back and i was like this is going to be my time to rekindle this yeah. like this high school sweetheart relationship and it wasn't everything i hoped and dreamed of it's not I, the pegasus it's, and that's that's the thing is i actually think it's a great shoe i just i i have found the love of my life in the pegasus and i can't go back with anything else <laughs> well and if you love um and if you don't want to wear nikes for for whatever reason some people are like that the metaspeed sky oh that's whatever, a great carbon shoe is that yeah. i think that in especially in the studies is like the second best it's right on the next level um from the nikes uh brooks uh from what i've seen in the studies their carbon shoe still has work to do yeah it's like at the bottom of the totem pole i actually don't know i mean i i coach some athletes that run for brooks and they run so fast on their trails like some people really like um the catamount oh that's um, firm that's another one of those it's firm. Like, but, walking you know, around in high heels i, I think it's back to how everyone varies like some yeah. people love the feel of that shoe and that's crush true. it, it yeah. like i think kimber uh, Maddox just set the rim to rim FKT in the Grand Canyon, I believe in the Catamount or at least in one of their um, trail shoes that have similar designs. So another good place that if you want to, they actually, what I like about the Catamount, it's a simple shoe. It's very simple. You know, and yeah. when we talk about that's also, all we want. it looks sexy too. It does. Yeah. It looks oh, yeah. sleek and sexy. I wear it to walk around because I'm like, I look fly in this shoe. Yeah. And I mean, I actually liked it. It was fast when I wore it. I'm just a thick boy through and through. Also, I wear the Brooks Glycerin growing up and I actually love that shoe. Um, I think it's a great, just like easy mile sort of trainer. And again, that was like a high school, college shoe of choice too. Um, yeah. So uh, let's skip Innovate in La Sportiva. Don't right. have anything interesting to say. New Balance. Uh, I think New Balance might be good for me too. I'm like, I'm such a shoe player. I just want to play the field. <laughs> um, but I look at New Balance and it's like, they clearly are thinking about me with people with big wide hobbit feet like they got that hobbit feet action going they have a really wide toe box yeah. actually i love their i love i love their 1080 growing up um their fresh foam line i, I really appreciate it they have good trail shoes yeah and you know i think new balance could be a big player in the trail field if they decide to be in the future like their structure the way they design shoes is really conducive to trails i've seen athletes excel in their road shoes on trails i could see them really coming into this in a major way in the future who knows haven't really seen them you know take that huge step in making like the next big shoe yet. I actually tried the New Balance Hero for a little bit. Oh, yeah. And the New Balance Hero had this like, it was this like extension coming off the heel that was to 
like prevent you from kicking mud up onto your backside. Yeah. And I was like, but that's the whole point of trail running. Like, I feel like you have a fundamental misunderstanding of trail running <laughs> if you put a heel extension on to prevent mud from splashing. So well, I was a little peeved by that, but I actually did like the shoe. You were trying to, you were going to wear it for Tiger Claw. I was. So you flew in it. Oh, I walked around in the airport and it, honestly, my feet were very uncomfortable. Yeah. And then we did a shakeout in it and my feet were also very uncomfortable. And then I had to go buy, buy Nike. So she horse. wore a new pair of Wild Horse to crush Tiger Claw, which is probably a pretty good advertisement for the Wild Horse, even if we talk some bad things about it. Next is on, which is really, they're also very committed to the bit with those things on the bottom of the shoe. They put that on every single shoe. You know, I feel like they just, they're, they're really about like treasure hunting Yeah. because you go out on trails and you take home treasures in the shoe every single day. Like something will get stuck in there, but you never know. Like there could be a heart rock in the bottom of your shoe that you're carrying. Home. It's true. I, I do like the way they support athletes a ton. Oh, like, actually they have an incredible athlete mission. Their clothes are really sexy. They, they put a lot of design into their shoes. I feel like I appreciate it. Yeah. I, but I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know if I'd race and or run in their shoes but they look really cool and they have a lot of money so you know a lot a lot of money from what i've seen and i could imagine them really stepping up their game in the future it's just not probably not for us um solomon uh their ultra shoe just so i got their ultra shoe being like oh maybe this could be like the speaker devo not for me i think it's hard as hell they have the pulsar though which yeah. is coming out and I th a lot of people seem to like the pulsar as like more of a softer like mix of that and so i've had a lot of athletes thrive with that yeah and solomon's i mean they clearly work since like every athlete and their mom runs in them. oh yeah everyone loves solomon so. um saucony i love saucony because katie asmuth and um adam mary and grayson murphy all run for them so i am sold just on those three people um but you know i haven't found the perfect shoe for me out of their lineup yet but you know, the people, some people like the Peregrines. I was going to say, I've seen a lot of people like the Peregrines. For they shoes. have a good combo of like supportive yet soft, yet like they do, rocks don't hurt your feet sort of situation going on. And I've seen a lot of people like them. And then last but not least, this is my favorite shoe brand of all, Skechers. Oh yeah. I'm so glad you included this. You know, I really like the light up Skechers. Yes. Those, those really, I mean, I feel like if you could light up for 100 miles, why do anything else? I like the shape ups. I, you know, the ones oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that get you toned while you're moving and running. And I wonder stuff. what that would do to hamstrings. Yeah. So everyone just buy Skechers. Have people tried running in shape ups? I thought, I is that know. advised? I should not know if Skechers even make shoes anymore. Do they? I think. Oh, they, they totally make shoes. They're okay. a big deal. I mean, they're part of, are they? Yeah. They do? Oh, they totally make shoes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so actually, I mean, I think, I mean, they sponsored Ned for a while. Yeah. You can probably tell we're joking. We don't know anything about Skechers, but I thought it would be very, very, very funny to mention it. Um, so this was quite an episode. Do you want to get to Listener Corner? Let's do it. Thank you for sticking with us. That was a really, I feel like that was like perhaps the, like the most fun I've had on the podcast was that 20 minutes. I feel like <laughs> you to do more of like N of one deep dives and stuff. I, I think sometimes like, there's just too, like reviews. There's too much pressure to have science everywhere. Sometimes we just need to shit on things. I know it was really fun. So if you follow on the Patreon, patreon.com slash swap, uh, we're going to be trying to do lots more fun things that involve, we'll do, we'll do other reviews. Yeah. Then involve a little less prep because like a lot of the times we have to prep so much to know the science for the regular podcast, which we'll always do um, that, you know, We'll, we'll release some of our spicier takes on Patreon. Oh, let's do it. Okay, so Listener Corner, and this is from Listener Duffy. I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for your incredible podcast. I'm a relatively new listener. I discovered y'all while listening to the Toronto Nation podcast and loved your vibe. And I've been binging episodes in my typical moderationist for the birds fashion. Um, without fail, every single episode, I find myself saying yes. When I finish the, this run, I'm going to send them an email, tell them just how close to home they're hitting, and finally thank them for honesty, humor, positivity, and brilliance. Unfortunately, without fail, I always get home and get too distracted by food instead, but not today. And then she got the be best email ever, and we love her. Um, but I love the getting distracted by food. Element. I was going to say that's the perfect summary for this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Get distracted by foodgasm. 
yesterday we had an argument and it was because I was eating my food. And oh, you Megan were like, don't over, talk serious business to me. As I and and I didn't handle it well at all because I was like, I just want to eat my chocolate checks and protein and Actually, peace. Actually, it's funny. I didn't even realize. I'm sorry. Like that is a failure on my part. I, I got soggy. serious topics when you're eating your cereal. <laughs> sorry. I didn't want to, I didn't want to like project my bad Oh, you should have told me that. I would have been food. like, let's stop this conversation right now. You I did some introspection after and being like, why did I react that way? And I think that's what it was. Um, so, uh, you know, I thought that that comment was interesting too, because it's like, if you have thoughts about the podcast, like we're going to be trying to open up the Patreon to like getting feedback. We're going to move in a lot of different directions. Our hope is to create a podcast network in the future to even do like essentially a media company eventually. But first, this is a little bit of a trial run to see if anyone actually wants that. Like, you know, whether the, I mean, we just don't know. We have no idea. All we know is that a lot of people listen to the podcast. You might just be on in the background while you're, you know, foodgasming, which is fine. We love that. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that's yeah. ideal, actually. Yeah, that's ideal. Um, so no pressure at all to support. And if you want to um, be on that Patreon but can't afford it, can't afford the $5 a month, just um, message us through some means and we'll make sure you can get it. Seriously, love you all. Thank you for sticking with us to this point. Thank you for supporting our science experiment and hopefully science experiments to come. Yes. You are the best. Big huzzah energy. Huzzah! Goodbye. We love you all.